you're listening to Reba Radio, the podcast. From 18th to the 26th of November 2021, our annual inclusion festival took the form of a dedicated radio station broadcast live from the bookshop at the Reba's HQ in London, with me, Marsha Ramroop, the Director of Inclusion at the RIBA, hosting the discussions. Reba Radio, the podcast, is the speech-only content from that radio station, themed and edited for your easy consumption. We suggest you make your way systematically through all episodes from the intro to the end to help you effectively on your inclusion journey. We hope you enjoy it and find it useful and applicable. Talking about food is a really, really important part of uh, CQ Drive because being able to bond over food uh, is a really, really good way of getting to work and relate effectively with, with those who are different from you. But sometimes that can be uncomfortable and pushing through that is a really key part of being able to build your CQ Drive muscle. And we're going to be talking about that now with Robin Schlenger, Jim Rooney and Phineas Harper. I'm going to get you to introduce yourselves, if I may, if I may start with Robin. Can you tell us a a bit about yourself and what does anti-racism mean to you? Mm. Good morning. Uh, Yes, hi. So um, my name is Robin Schlenker. And for those of you um, who obviously can't see me, (laughs) I I always identify letting folks know I use she, her pronouns and that I am white, cisgendered and able-bodied. A little bit about me. I'm going to, Marsha, can you do me a favor? Because I tend to ramble. So can you repeat what you'd like to hear, especially since for me, it's five o'clock in the yes, morning. Yes, <laughs> it's 5 a.m. So thank you so much for joining us from the States. Um, so I'd like you to tell tell me a bit about yourself and what does anti-racism mean to you? So you've described yourself, your white, cisgendered, able-bodied, and you're probably a little bit tired. <laughs> and um, yeah, what does anti-racism mean to you? Okay. Super. Um, I, I believe anti-racism to me and anti-racist is is to me a verb. Um, I always decide, describe myself, but I like to borrow from a friend, um, being a racist anti-racist. So for me as a white woman, um, and especially here in the United States, the way that our the colonization of this country, <clears throat> um, I I believe that I cannot help but have you know, growing up in and being bred in a racist society or what I would call white supremacist culture, that racism is not necessarily, you know, someone that I, that I am or I'm bad, but it is in me. And so I call myself a racist anti-racist. So that means that it's, to me, it's a verb. Being an anti-racist is an action. It's not um, who I am. It's what I strive to be and how I act every day. And it's something I can't just do once. <laughs> I have to be doing it all the time. And you actually work as an anti-racist consultant uh, in, in the States and, and you're available. Uh, you know, you, you have materials available to, to everyone online, don't you? Yes, I have materials online. Um, my background originally was as a therapist and social worker, but uh, I still do a variety of consulting trainings, uh, super, clinical supervisions and coaching. Um, many trainings, but everything that I do at this point in my life is all anti-racist, anti-oppressive focused. And uh, 
Phineas, if I can get you to introduce yourself next and, and tell me about how you manage discomfort. Hi, Marcia. Hi. Um, I'm an architecture critic. I've, I've sort of run away from that, though, and I now um, work at a charity called Open City, which you you know may know because of the Open House Festival, which is our biggest thing, but we also do an enormous amount of work with children in London, um, particularly focusing on communities who are underrepresented in architecture but the wider built environment as well um i mean discomfort is a we're british right like the british empire is extraordinarily complicit in all manner of uh, horrific things in the past and i think to understand that history has to come with a level of understanding um with a level of discomfort right it's pretty grim what britain did in the past i'm also a christian and there's so many awful things that have happened in the name of christianity and these are kind of very uncomfortable feelings to reckon with when you you know you don't want to sort of um, abandon your faith or uh, emigrate to another country but you still want to find some way of navigating this complex and very difficult history that is wrapped up in race that's wrapped up in gender that's wrapped up in class and wealth and all of these things that affect us on a very personal level every day so my approach to managing that level of discomfort is to lean into it i guess to sort of rather than running away and, and be like oh i don't want to talk about the british empire actually let's learn about it let's learn about um, as much as possible because we don't learn about it in schools <laughs> our parents might not have learned about it in schools either so they they, they can't always teach us because um, the more that we know, the more we understand about the context that um, has shaped us, the better we'll be able to see its flaws and the better we'll be able to act with whatever power we do have to dismantle the problems that we perceive um, in society. Thank you. Thanks for that, Finn. And, and Jim, Jim Rooney, if you could introduce yourself and, and tell me about your your journey with discomfort and, and sure. yeah, following up with that. Morning. Uh, I'm Jim. Uh, I work as an architect in London uh, for E2 Architecture. Uh, I grew up in, was born in France actually, and grew up in France until I was 18. Uh, started out in a uh, French school at the age of about four. Um, was um, picked on for being different at that time because I was the only English kid within a French environment. Uh, my parents realised how depressed I was at that age and moved me across the country to put me in a British school where I was then picked on for being different again because I was the only English kid that was had never grown up in England. Uh, so I've learned uh, through sort of that experience throughout my life the sort of the, um, the plight of people who are different uh, and, and how that difficulty can manifest in your life. And so I've always been aware from my own experience going through school um, and recognising how that sort of, how society and how even a school environment can sort of um, affirm and uh, sort of, uh, how, how, do you, how would you say, um, implements this sort of normality, which is all about um, picking on people who are not this sort of white, male, cisgendered, straight norm that we measure everything against. And so... You know, we're talking today about, um, you know, uh, sort of discomfort. Um, and one of my favourite speeches by Malcolm X is about uh, being proud of being maladjusted. And I think that speaks very well to this idea that, as you were just saying, to lean into it, to understand that we are all different and to understand what that difference can be and to be aware of it and to therefore, you know, confront yourself 
in those instances where you see someone being treated unfairly or differently um, and to say something and to do something about it. So. Thank you. Thank you, Finn. Thank you, Jim, for, the, for those uh, insights. Uh, Robin, uh, listening to these two white British men over here um, uh, <laughs> talking about their, you know, their, their, their ability to lean into that discomfort, uh, in your anti-racism work, is, is that something that's usual to come across? Hmm. Um, no, and especially, you know, as we think about and, and as I say that, I want to be careful to say that, like, I'm not all there and all woke, um, you know, I, when I so rather than pointing at the two of you, <laughs> um, it, it's, you know, I think sometimes I find the more educated, the more intellectual um, we are as white folks that the more we don't, we are so disconnected from our bodies. And, and I think that, you know, white supremacy culture teaches us to value the intellect over the body. And so I often find, you know, people raised and very, you know, male, if you are raised as a male, there's also this like value the intellect and don't, and don't value the body. Um, and so leaning in because it is so uncomfortable is not something that, you know, that is found often. How did you come to be involved in anti-racist work? <laughs> Um, so there is an, an, a group here called the People's Institute of Survival and Beyond, um, and they've been about around 30 years, started as a grassroots group, um, and they do trainings that they call um, Undoing Racism and Community Organizing. And so I attended one of those three-day trainings with a group of uh, directors. I was working at a nonprofit in New York City where we worked in schools and we had grants. And so we were a majority of white clinicians and trainers going into schools that were majority of black and brown children and families. Um, and finally, you know, through one of our uh, folks of color that were working for us, enough people were like, you know, you guys, <laughs> you need to look at what's happening in the way that you are operating. And so we all as a group, 11 of us attended this training and I, I walked out of there um, and I always forget which pill they take on the matrix, but I took the pill that said, you're not waking up from this. And all of a sudden it was just like somebody took a snow globe and rocked my world. And I realized I've been seeing the world in like with blinders on. So that's kind of where my journey started. And how much um, uh, pushback do you <laughs> get, you know, even though people invite you, to discuss this with them what is it like in reality when you do open that can of worms yeah um it can get really uncomfortable um I just spoke yesterday with another white colleague of mine who does similar work and we support each other and she got slammed by an organization and you know what often happens in these conversations and not, you know, with white folks, with folks of color, you know, because we all bought into this system. And so what happens is people get triggered. And I feel like when you're talking about shame or you're talking about discomfort, you get, you know, the typical, it's like fight, you know, flight or freeze. And so often you'll get the really direct 
and then people go quickly to their intellect and they want to challenge and they want to talk about the words uh, they want to attack and they just want to talk about how they're they're the exception their organization is the exception and I don't see this and and then there's ways instead of dealing with what's really coming up it'll be my facilitation and how I wasn't nice to this other person and they made them uncommon. It just, it's like total kind of projection back onto me. Um, and people are often voluntold to come to some of these things when I work with organizations and there's so many levels. Um, and it can be really hard, you know, because I think for me, one of the key principles is like making sure that I am acting from humanity, like seeing the humanity in each other. And there are times when it's really, it can be really triggering for me. Um, I would say my defense mechanism when really put in that situation can be to attack. <laughs> and I have to, part of my work with kind of leaning in and sitting in the discomfort is to really be able to regulate my body and to remind myself that these are other human beings and you know sitting in front of me. And the more I understand about how people react and how uncomfortable and painful it can be for some people to really be confronted with this, um, the more compassion I can have. But I'm not gonna lie and say that it's simple <laughs> or that I do it well all the time. Um, but you know, you're really dealing with people, their, their worlds are being shaken. And um, it's as if they have to hang on and they'll do anything they can to hang on to the truth that, as they see it, that makes them comfortable. Jim, what, what did you think about what Robin was saying there? I, I think what was really interesting um, was when Robin was talking about the, the sort of the go-to response that she often gets when she's doing this work. And that that's definitely something that I can relate to. And, and I, I always will come from my experience of this. I, my wife is black, she's from a Caribbean background and my children have that dual heritage. So there's that kind of impetus within me to kind of overcome these things. But often when I'm confronted with my privilege and my, and, and my understanding of the world and the way that I've been brought up, that, that go-to response is often anger. It's often just complete upset, but it's an anger that really I direct at myself, but still comes out to other people around me, which is, which is the real tragic thing about it. Um, so I can definitely relate to to that being the issue. And, I, you know, the way that I approach it these days is just to, to implement a philosophy of just every day is a new day. We start from scratch and we try and make that day better than the one that came before. And that's that's the only way that I can deal with the sort of the magnitude of, of this issue that is present in my my being and my life. Um, so, yeah, that's that's how how I take it. Finn, that the magnitude, the size of of the issue of, of of managing that discomfort. I mean, obviously, race is just just a part of it, but a really big part of it. And you 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 mentioned British history as well. I mean, what's your take on what what Jim and and Robin have been saying? Um, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because you're you're both right. Like people generally don't lean in; they generally run away. They they you see them do the weird things like hide what schools they went to on LinkedIn because they went to quite a posh school and they, they don't want that to be sort of known. Um, we did some research at the Architecture Foundation a, a few years ago looking at the founders of the practices that had got into New Architects 3, which is this sort of very glamorous book about the best British architecture practices. And over half of them had been to private schools, these founders, um, which is, you know, astonishing when you think that only 5% of um, British people 
go to a, a, go to private schools that you know architecture at least the successful practices that are coming forward are extraordinarily unrepresentative of the British public at last. But you very rarely hear um, anyone from those backgrounds just like be upfront about it. You know, I went to private school, gave me some advantages. Here's how I've used those advantages to help others, or here's how I've used those advantages um, for good, which is very, it's kind of disappointing, right? Because, you know, if you think of Spider-Man, right, the, the, what, the, what the central message of the whole kind of Spider-Man series is with, with power comes responsibility. And I guess ultimately when you're talking about race or gender or um, wealth or any of this stuff, or, or like being British versus being from the global south or not being British, you're talking about power. And Spider-Man, the character, has extraordinary power and wrestles with that power to try and do good and do good in, in ways that um, help the people around him, that protect his loved ones from harm. He doesn't run away and hide in shame. Oh, I'm feeling so ashamed that I've been given this extraordinary power. He uses it and he uses it well and he's very upfront about it. You know, he dresses up and so on. Um, so it's a sort of slightly sort of silly metaphor, but I think we could all do with being a little bit more like Spider-Man, just being upfront about our power, acknowledging where it comes from, thinking about how we got it, how we got an unfair advantage because we went to a great school or, um, or whatever our advantage happens to be. And then using that power to affect positive change in the world. So, yeah, it's sad to hear that people are kind of um, running away. Um, I think there's, there's far more to gain from being upfront, explicit and um, proactive about how you use power than there is to gain from, from sort of avoiding it or, or not, not confronting it. That's amazing, isn't it, Robin, to hear? Um, I mean, I don't know whether you use the Spider-Man analogy, Robin, at all. <laughs> uh, but you know that that sense of of are you able to get that message across when you're when you're doing your anti-racist work yeah I mean I think you know uh, and I'm just laughing when 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 you use the spider because I have a mentor and Dr. Ken Hardy who often says you know those with the most power and privilege have the most and, I, and you, you just worded it well and I always forget how it goes so I'm like oh it was Spider-Man <laughs> not Dr. Ken Hardy or that's where he got it from um yeah and I you know and I want to apologize as I I just thought back when I it both said like it was like very surprising to see, see two men um and I have to take that back because I'm going to get hell for that you know in the community that that I am in um where where um, there are many men doing this work. Um, but again, I'm in a bubble. I often think about the community. I'm first of all, living in New York City um, and I've created, I've created, I've built a network of folks um, over the several years um, because this needs to happen in community. And in that community, there are many um, male identified folks. So I wanna just kind of, you know, take that back because it might not be common, but it is, you know, I, I know many men that are doing this work. And certainly, you know, as, you, as you're doing that work, um, what sort of actions are you suggesting people take to try to manage that discomfort, to, to lean into it, to, to recognise the defensiveness as it happens? I think, um, well, I mean, just to, to name, of course, I mean, I, I wouldn't, you know, certainly would not be here doing this work if it was not for the many shoulders, you know, that I stand on. And many of those are, are folks of color. And I do, I co-facilitate um, a training called Shame Resilience and Transformation Skills for White People with Dr. Alana Tappan. And 
Dr. Tappan is, uh, she was born and, in Jamaica and she now lives in Canada. And so this was her brainchild. Um, and and this, is, this could be a whole nother radio show, but you know, she started talking about what she sees in white folks and that she really sees shame um, as this huge barrier for white folks that when once we're feeling shame, it's almost like the lizard brain gets activated, right? And then we can't, if we can't work through that and trans, you know, and transform it, then we are not gonna be able to show up. We're not gonna be able to show up for racial justice. We're not gonna be able to show up to do the work that we say we want to do. So what we do, one of the many things that we do, that, you know, we do in the workshop is to really, you know, we use a lot of Resma Menikin's work and like just thinking about how you have to, it's our nervous systems that are so like, my brain might know that if I talk about race or I have a conversation about race, um, I'm going to be uncomfortable, you know, my, but my brain knows it's discomfort, but my body might sense it as like, oh my God, I'm going to die. Like my body thinks that it is, it, it can be that uncomfortable that the automatic nervous system just takes over. So we really work with folks to kind of, um, validate, to name, you know, name all the things that are coming up. We talk about the ugly thoughts and the biases and the things that we've said to people and the microaggressions. Um, and we sit with it and we use empathy towards ourselves. But Alana and I call it accountable empathy. It's not like, oh, it's okay, I'm gonna let it go. It doesn't mean I'm not accountable for my actions and I'm not accountable to do better. And we really try to work with folks to be able to regulate their nervous systems and, and we talk a lot about co-regulation, you know, that that's part of, again, white supremacy culture really kind of stands up individual, you know, and in order, we look at anti-racism, this is a collective, we're a collective humanity. So empathy um, and self-regulation and learning how to sit through the discomfort is really a lot of the work that we do so that we can transform the, the guilt and a lot of that stuff that, um, you know, that comes up for us and use it, you know, and be able to use it. Finn, how do you feel about um, describing our system in which we live, if you like, as, as being white supremacist or, you know, that white supremacy? How, how does that make you feel? Um, I mean, that's very, yeah, I don't, I don't, I guess I don't feel anything like it, it feels very accurate um, I think that's a kind of accurate description of uh, certainly British history, well, over the last few hundred years, let's say, um, and that history is very much still with us. So, I, yeah, I, I, I try to just take that as a sort of scientific, observable fact. And then the question is, okay, well, what do you do about that? Rather than getting bogged down in, in, in like, oh, how does that make me feel? I, I, I do sort of feel like... Um, the media is very bad at this. The, me the media goes, rather than, in my experience, people understand this stuff better than the media does. And the media, I know you worked at the BBC, so I'm sorry about this, but it's I okay. do feel that sometimes uh, the media gets very anxious about these terms like white supremacy or, 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 or privilege or, or whatever it is, uh, and turns it into a bigger debate than it really ought to be. It ought to just be a kind of fairly straightforward acknowledgement of, of, of like, fairly recent history um but the media gets it wrong and so often you know 
a working class black or brown teenager in North Kensington has far more in common with a working class white retired person in, in Stockport, for example. But that's not how the media would have us believe it. The, the media sort of likes to pretend that everyone in the South is a kind of quinoa guzzling, posho, metropolitan elite, and everyone in the North is the child of a minor or something. Um, and of course, this is kind of utter nonsense. Um, and it, it drives us apart. So instead of seeing opportunities to build solidarity, to build coalitions, to actually kind of take down some of these, these, these white supremacist structures, we end up retreating into these, um, these bubbles or, or these kind of tribes that are uh, told, we're told we live in by our kind of biased media. And so I guess I'm really interested in seeing how we, how we can um, yeah, lean in, sure, but also like, build those coalitions that will actually affect change. And I was very persuaded by the writer Emma Dabiri in... Um, uh, she wrote What White People Can, can Do, do Next, next. Mm. which is an, an extraordinary book. Um, sort of isn't quite what it sounds like it's going to be. Um, but there's this amazing chapter in it um, about the the alliance between the Black Panthers and the, the young patriots in the States. And, and, you know, we should be careful about confusing the UK and the US. They're very, very different mm. contexts. But her point is that um, the young patriots, who are a kind of white group, and Black Panthers, who are clearly black, um, build a coalition and uh, it's not based on shame it's based on mutual respect because they understand that they have more to gain by working together than they do by working apart and in the end the the, the patriots stop using the confederate flag um, out of respect for the panthers uh, they haven't been you know shamed on social media into stopping using it mm. but they, they they proactively make that choice because they have come to understand that the panthers struggle and uh, they recognise that there's far more for them as, as, as working class people to gain by working together than um, they could if they were sort of working against each other or seeing each other's struggles as in competition. It's not a zero-sum game. Um, and so I think this, this term white supremacy is, is, is a good one, um, but hopefully the, the challenge is how do we all get together and tackle that supremacy Rather than um, seeing it as, as something that um, you know that we can that we have to compete to fight against. Picking up on what Robin was talking about and the sort of the paralysis that kind of happens when uh, you confront your own privileges. Um, you know, I think I think that the point is is that we're talking about discomfort, and discomfort can can be paralyzing, right? Um, and so you have to be able to get to a point with it where it's still functional. You can still function within the, the discomfort, which is difficult. It's really difficult to do. And, you know, this is, I think, the, the, the larger problem, the wider problem with society. And when we talk about white supremacy, it's that, that triggering kind of phrase for a lot of people. And they do just completely go into this state of paralysis and they don't know how to react. And so they close down, shut down and walk away from the conversation. And so... What's really interesting, I think, about a lot of the work that Open City are doing and various other organisations, and, and when you're talking about the media getting it wrong, they do, because that, you know, when we talk about white supremacy, you have to define it in terms of power, control and money, and right, this, these are the people that have the power, the money and the control, and they are intent on keeping that power, that money and that control, and so they use the mechanisms that they have to control the narrative, and so you have to usurp that system 
And the way that you do that, which comes back to, to what Phineas and, and his organization are doing and many others, is that you start at the bottom. You start at the sort of granular grassroots level and you go out into the community and you deal with it on, a, on an individual basis. You just change one person's mind at a time. And that's the, the, the work that I do in my local community that I, f I find so rewarding. And, and you start with yourself, you start with your family, you start with your friends, you know, who, whoever it is that you interact with. And if you can just make a change, one change, every day, then you're winning, you know, we're winning. Do you recognise how unusual you are, or certainly from many other people's perspective, as a white man to have that point of view? I, I do, um, but that doesn't sort of make me rest on my laurels in any kind of way. Um, you know, it's that, and that's not the, the reason why I do this. It's not to kind of just, you know, make myself feel good about the fact that I'm different in that respect. Um, but yeah, fundamentally, yeah, of course I recognize that, that I have an unusual take on this, I guess. in architecture do you feel that you know that there is um an, an ex acceptance of this idea that white supremacy is something that you know is it a phrase we can use in in the sector um well it certainly feels like it's growing in in, in maybe in my generation i don't know but um uh maybe i'm lucky to be in a bubble of of, of colleagues and volunteers who who are all working towards the mission around making the city more equitable. And so um, it's something that we talk about quite a lot at um, Open City, but you know, I have been talking about the Architecture Foundation and other places for a while. Um, but I, I think Jim's sort of spot on there that like, in a way, it doesn't matter how kind of woke you are deep down, uh, how, how much you see the system or how comfortable you are using these terms. It's about what you do, right? And um, to, to, to pick another uh, superhero, <laughs> Batman would say, it's not who I am underneath, but it's what I do that defines me. Yeah. And I think that's a very powerful thought that, you know, like we can talk about this stuff and um, f finding a way to kind of navigate shame or to, to, to be comfortable using terms that might be triggering for others is, is all very good. Um, but the next step has to be, okay, having had those conversations, what do we then use our power that we've realised we have to do to affect change? How do we use that to build some... Some, some coalitions to set up a new program that might support people in a different way to moderate the way that we are as individuals either on stage or in a community how do we go out and like meet people where they are what what changes do we make having kind of realized how biased and how unfair and how complicated um the world that we we live in is yeah, really, really good point. And, and to reference Emma Dabiri again, she talks about coalition over allyship as well. Um, uh, Robin, um, I, I don't know if you can speak to this, um, but sometimes racialized individuals can feel uncomfortable when we see white people's discomfort talking about race or being confronted with racism. I remember discussing on a podcast how we can, we, we as, as people of colour needed to get comfortable with that discomfort and, and lead into that ourselves. Do you have any particular tips around that? Is it the same kind of process that mm -hmm. you would suggest that for, for white people? It's interesting. Um, no, I, and I think it's different. Um, and it is really hard to speak for folks of color. I can only speak 
from what I've been told and, you know, experiences that have been shared with me. Um, that would be a tough one for me as a white person to say, like, y'all need to lean into the discomfort of watching white people learn. Um, I mean, I think there's this really piece of like, I don't remember where I read it, but someone kind of described like, you know, for white folks, we're kind of still like in preschool when it comes to talking about race, you know, when folks of color have a PhD because they have, they've always, you know, seen themselves as racialized, you know, and like, I have a race, I have a race, you know, we always other, we talk about race, it's everybody but white people. So I do believe, you know, and a lot of, a lot of this came up with the work that I was doing with Alana that she wanted to do a workshop, you know, with shame resilience for folks of color and realizing that like, there is a shame, but it shows up very differently. Um, and I, and I think that in order to, you know, if we're talking about liberation for all of us, you know, um, that we all have, have work to do, but I think that folks of color and white folks have different work to do. Um, I think we need to do some work on our own. And then I also very much believe that we need to, we can, we can work together. Um, but there's so many different things that can show up. Um, so I don't, I don't know if I'd say lean into the discomfort. I, I have to say that like, I don't expect or, you know, when I'm, when I'm in relationship with folks of color or having conversations or doing trainings, I don't expect anything. I don't expect lenience. I don't expect to be given um, grace. Um, and it's not about, I'm not sitting there saying like, I'm a horrible human being because I'm white and I don't deserve it. It's just that I understand to, to the best level that I can, you know, that it's two different experiences. And I've just seen so many folks of color injured um, and re-traumatized by having to sit in some conversations, you know, even with us white folks who are talking about this and, and have an understanding, we still, you know, we're still gonna be white people. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a long answer to a question I think is, is tough for me to answer, but that's the best way that I can. Now, I appreciate that for trying, Robin, because, I, yeah, I did put you in a bit of a difficult position there. I mean, Jim, I saw you nodding your head away there. You know, what was it that particularly struck you about what Robin well, was I mean, saying? you know, I'm in a relationship with a black woman and fundamentally I totally I get it. You know, it's like and, and it's it, there's so, so much of our relationship comes down to this barrier that is my whiteness. Um, and. You, you you can just feel I can feel the frustration from her side where she's just like really this again you know am I really gonna have to sit through this again whilst you get to the point where you know you need to get to um but yeah I mean it's that and that's really difficult you know I, I I likewise I can't really speak to how that must feel or or, or, or advise, you know, how to deal with that uh, I just know that it's a work in progress in, in my relationship with my wife Mm. Finn, you know, when you reflect on 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 that sense of, you know, people of color watching you go through mistakes, watching you learn and 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 go through, do, what what do you think you you can do differently, maybe to to help them with that situation? That's a tough one, I know. Yeah, like I, I yeah, I, I also couldn't really um, wouldn't want to try and answer like what it's like for other people to see. I, I think it's. I mean, this is a part of the problem with this whole conversation is it, it tries to make an enormously complex situation quite simple. And of course, 
there's there's no such thing as 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 folks of color there's many many different types of people from different places with different backgrounds um the british empire alone has you know enormous number of like different complex atrocities to answer for um in different parts of the world so uh i'm 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 really resistant to making kind of broad brush generalizations about what different people experience in different situations i do think though that um we can all we can all do more and we should all be trying to do more um uh, white people bosh people male people i should say actually i i'm, I'm non-binary so um that's a, a kind of new identity that i'm grappling with re more recently but maybe i'm less able to speak from the perspective of a man than i used to be um but whatever kind of background we come from um we have to acknowledge that the world is not not very fair at all and just some of the stats that we've, we've talked through today and, and uh, that will be thrown around in in this radio show for the next few days really reveal the extent to which we don't live in a meritocracy that the game is rigged and um we have to find ways whether we, we are the beneficiary of that rigging or or the the victim of that rigging we have to find ways to call it out and to to dismantle it and i i'm i think we can do it i think enormous strides are being made um but there's an enormous enormously long way to go still um and so uh i'm always looking for 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 ways to use my power such as it is and i would encourage any everybody listening to this to to, to critically reflect on what what leg ups you've got in your your life they could be small things they could be huge things um, and how will you use that little bit of extra power that you've you've been gifted to do something um, to dismantle this white supremacist superstructure that we all live in? Many thanks to Phineas Harper, Jim Rooney and Robin Schlenger for talking about discomfort, talking about uh, that shame piece and really being open about their own experiences. You're listening to Reba Radio, real inclusive, brilliant action. 